0: Welcome back to A Place Called Porch. This week, we interviewed Mr. Terry Sweat, who is the Chief of Staff for the Porch Band of Creek Indians Tribal Government. He works closely with the Tribal Council and other executive team members, and he's really passionate about the work he does for the tribe. Terry truly cares about his employees, tribal members, and the community. Let's just start with, tell us who you are and what your role is here at Porch.
1: All right. Well, I'm Terry Sweat. I'm the Chief of Staff here at Tribal Government. I joined the team here at Porch in August of 2016 after 20 years at the Seminole Tribal Florida.
0: So you worked at Seminole Tribal Florida for 20 years. A long time. A long time. Yeah. So what brought you here to Porch?
1: So really kind of two reasons. I grew up in northern Florida, so I grew up in a real small town called Live Oak, Florida. It's kind of a farming community. My parents were still there, hired educators. Um, They were in the school system there, were teachers and administrators. And I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, And at the time that this opportunity presented itself to come to Porch, my two brothers lived in California. So As with many folks, as you have aging parents, their needs begin to change. And so, um, living in South Florida, I was about seven hours away from my parents with my brothers being on the West Coast. So when this particular position presented itself when I was very interested in the position, it was really kind of the next progression for me professionally Uh, It was going to bring a new set of challenges and opportunities to learn and grow um, personally and professionally. But it also gave me an opportunity to get closer to geographically to my parents as they were beginning to have just older issues.
0: So you mentioned that you actually lived in sort of more of the northern panhandle of Florida, but of course Seminole is more on the southern end. So how did you end up in that area and then what what led you to the Seminole Tribe of Florida?
1: So um, I went to school at Florida State. So all of you Auburn and Alabama fans, don't get upset with me, but I... Uh, went to school Florida State, and what got me to South Florida was I was doing my graduate internship at the VA hospital in Miami, my first master's degree is in social work. Um, I was doing my internship at the VA hospital in Miami, um, it was a great opportunity, really, really enjoyed my time there, and there was a position open for a social worker at um, the Seminole Tribe. And so I applied and got the job. They actually held the position for me. I was about a month or so away from graduating with uh, graduate school. So they held the position for me, and I started three days after I walked across to receive my master's degree and went right to work for Seminole. I say often that the Seminole tribe helped raise me. I started there when I was 30, and left there when I was 50. I've had the opportunity to grow and move into different positions um, during my tenure there. So um, that's what got me to South Florida and spent my time there.
0: So you started there as a social worker. So how did your career progress while you were there?
1: So I started out as a social worker. Um, Geographically, the Seminole Tribe is set up in six reservations. So they have a, a broad swath of tribal reservations, trust land. So I had kind of the top three reservations, so I kind of went side to side from Fort Pierce to the Brighton community to the Tampa community, and that's where my territory was. So I did that for um, about a year and a half and then um, was promoted to a supervisor, I was the site supervisor for that area. And then after about two years of employment, I became the family services director. So all of their social services, behavioral health, mental health, I became the director of that. So I oversaw that for all six reservations and did that for about two years. Um, and then our uh, assistant health director was retiring and so the health director at that time came to me and said, I would like you to move up into this position. So I became the assistant health director, um, was in that position for 12 years. Um, so spent a, a large amount of time certainly diving in, in terms of health care, where I got to know Chairman Buford Rowland quite well. Um, he was your health director and then moved as your chair. So began to developed some relationships with Porch very early on during my time um, as the uh, assistant health director. And then um, the last four years I was there, um, the executive office called and said we have a position that we really think you would be a good asset to. And so the last four years that I was there, um, I was the senior director of administration for the Executive Office, our Executive Administrative Officer, so which we oversaw really um, all the direct services that were provided to the tribal members. So we had about, um, I think it was about 720 employees that were under our purview.
0: And I remember I was part of the interview process you you whenever were.
1: we- It was a very long six hours of <laughs> interviews, yes. Multiple panels, it was a long day. It
0: was, it was. So what's interesting too is you were sort of the last piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of folks may not understand is whenever the chairwoman was elected, it became apparent that there needed to be some structural changes Mm -hmm. um, within the organization. Because I remember whenever I was working with her as her executive assistant, she had somewhere around 13 or 14 direct reports. And, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot to keep up with a lot of individuals to keep up with and, and directly supervise when you're in the role and position that she's in. So we had to look at how to not only rearrange that structure just for the sake of making sure that everybody got the attention and the time that they needed in the, in the direction, but also how did we streamline Mm -hmm. Services and departments, because there are some departments that just naturally fit together because they work hand in hand in a lot of ways. And so I know that she worked with an outside organization to take a look at how we were structured and you know what would make sense. But those division directors were actually already in place you. before you came on board, and you were kind of the last piece and and. What was that like, Terry, coming into a situation where you're going to supervise these division directors, but you didn't have a chance, you didn't actually hire them, you weren't a part of that process at all?
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, I got to meet them through the interview process. And so, you know, when you do an interview, you think, okay, the, the person interviewing for the position is getting all the questions, but I'm also interviewing the organization. So, you know, you're asking questions, you're getting a sense, a feel for the room. You you know, who are the people you're gonna be working for and with? You know, you kind of walk out of that with some thoughts and perspective on different folks that um, participated in the interview, and I think that everybody, all the division directors were present except one. So just like anything with any organization, you know, you may walk into a new position and staff is already there. But I also entrusted this, the chairwoman, she hired those folks, she put those folks in place. So you know, I'm sure that was done with a lot of thought and um, consideration in terms of those folks being the best fit for those positions at that time. So. I really didn't have a lot of hesitation about that. It was more that I needed to build those build my relationship with those directors and understand, you know, what were some of their challenges and issues and goals for themselves. So it really was not a I didn't come in with angst about that, you know, it was you know I, but hey, you know, you all had put that those folks in place for a reason. And so I respected that.
0: So what was that transition period like for you when you came from Seminole, Florida? Um, and we're working with the Seminole Tribal of Florida to working with the Porch Band of Creek Indians. Well,
1: I think, you know, here is this unknown person that's coming into this organization. So, and the Chief of Staff was a new position for Porch, so I was not replacing someone. Now, you had had a tribal administrator, but this role was a little bit different. Uh, the job description was a little bit different from what I understood at the time. And so, I think with anything, you know, coming in, you, you kind of, I do the three L's, you look, listen, and learn is kind of was the approach that I took. Um, you don't come in, you know, changing things right away, you know, let's get a good baseline. What's the foundation that we're working with? And that's really kind of what I did the first 90 days. Obviously, the, one of the differences between um, Seminole and Ports was that you have nine council members, that obviously including the tribal chair CEO is included in that number. You know, at Seminole, you know, I had five. So I had a much larger governing body that, you know, as opposed to building relationships with five, I needed to build relationships with nine. So I think it's, you know, them watching my work, me learning, my directors, what are the challenges, what are the priorities, uh, beginning to form some assessments, beginning to get a good handle on what some of the challenges might be. And in the midst of that, you're still in deal, dealing with the unexpected, the day-to-day unexpected. So whether it was a personnel issue or whether it was an operational issue, Those, you know, you get those curveballs when you kind of wake up and say, this is what I'm going to get accomplished today. And at the end of the day, you're like, gosh, I didn't get any of that done because uh, of that was really the process probably in the first six months that I was here. Um, When I got here in August and, you know, I felt like by the time I got to January or February, I kind of felt like, okay. I know where the buildings are, I know who my people are, Um, I'm beginning to understand the policies and so I felt like I was beginning to to get a good foundation underneath me.
0: And now that you've gotten that foundation Mm -hmm. and you've been here since 2016, what is it like working with Porch every day?
1: Well, you know, it's it's with anything. You know, I I get up every morning um, and you don't quite know what the day is going to bring you. Um, it is not an eight-to-five job. Um, I live an hour away from here. I live over in Pace, Florida. So, I do a lot of phone calls typically on the way in in the morning. I'm um, less until I go through Walnut Hill. My phone always drops at Walnut Hill, so I know where all the spots are when my cell service won't work. But I'm typically doing work on my way in, addressing issues that have come up overnight. I typically address issues um, on my way home, and um, certainly, you know, it's. You just never know what happens. Last night we were dealing with issues till about ten o'clock last night. So, you know that's that's just the nature of the game. So I think you know what gets me up here every day is that the work is rewarding. It's challenging. I mean, some days you know you walk out and you go, "Whew!" You know that one was really tough. Sometimes things are challenging. Sometimes things um, frustrate you, and then. When you get those nuggets of success and you get something done and something accomplished and you've impacted a tribal member or their family in a positive way, that feels really good um, to know that you're part of change. It's not an I, it's a we, it's a team. You know, it really is. Um, No one does anything alone. And so I have a great team. I have a really great team that I work with. So that's what you know, that you're making a difference. I think when you're no longer making a difference, then I think then it's, and you're no longer feel like you can contribute. And that's when I think you have to step back and reevaluate. But, you know, I'm not at that point yet. I feel like I still have a little bit something to give.
0: So. What all areas fall under your purview right now?
1: So let me see if I can get it all right. Um, cause my brain's a little older these days. I'm older. <laughs> I'm six years older. i almost seven <laughs> years older than when I got to four. So, but
0: you still look like a spring chicken Terry. Uh,
1: <laughs> You know, I have the health department, I have the cell center, I have the assisted living public safety facilities. Um, We have community services, which is our Boys and Girls Club education. I have HRs underneath me. IT was moved underneath me recently. And then the tribal council um, office staff. Um, So the staff that support tribal council, um, I work closely with that staff um, that sits underneath me. So, you know, those are really kind of the areas that sit underneath, you know, my purview. The legal department, the accounting department, government relations reports directly to our tribal chair and CEO. But everything else besides that sits under the chief of staff.
0: That's a lot.
1: It's a lot. You know, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, we have about 615 employees here at tribal government and about 550 of those sit underneath the chief of staff. So,
0: How do you keep up with it all, Terry?
1: Well, you rely on your division directors and you rely on your direct reports to manage their departments and their resources. Um, And when the directors get stuck is typically when they ring my doorbell. You know, um, sometimes I have to step in. Um, Sometimes I have to look at situations and guide them or direct them or have conversations with them. But it's about empowering your directors to do their jobs. You know, they, they have important jobs here at tribal government. And so I have to allow them to use their knowledge and skills and wisdom to be able to run their operations on a day-to-day basis. And when they get stuck or something throws us a curveball, then you know, we'll roll our sleeves up and huddle and kind of figure it out together. So.
0: so I can't imagine that dealing with around 550 employees that you would ever have to deal with any conflict
1: Well, you know, sometimes I feel like I should have a PhD in conflict resolution. Um, You know, we're human and so conflict is a part of life and so whether you're dealing with personality conflict or you're dealing with different perspectives on a particular issue, maybe it's a policy interpretation, um, maybe it's why are we doing it this way, why aren't we doing it that way. So it just depends on what's presented with you. But I think it's here regardless, I think kind of the issue is how you approach it. I've always told staff that, you know, if I'm running down the hall screaming that the sky is falling, then people are gonna believe, well, it must be really bad because the chief of staff is thinking the sky's falling. So I try to lead by example. I try to show up and do my best. I'm a firm believer. And and I think that there's, I think people will test to, be a testament to this is that I, I integrity is really important to me uh, professionalism is incredibly important to me how you conduct yourself how you present yourself every day whether i'm here at porch or whether i'm anywhere else um, the fact that i'm the chief of staff i take that very seriously and how i represent the tribe so never to do anything that would you know look negatively upon the tribe you know i have opinions and i have thoughts about things too but i do believe in being professional and working with integrity um, those are important parts of my fingerprint that I have with that I've done the works of the work I've done with Lapin those are really important elements to who I am
0: and Lapin for those that don't know is an organization that is known for working with organizations and businesses to bring out really the best in people and to identify what is it that makes you tick as a person um, as far as your value system. And when you kind of tap into your own personal value system, then you better understand, well, what triggers me? What makes me work better? How can I produce better results? How do I work better with people? And so it goes into a whole different gamut of of really just personal and professional development has been very helpful for me, too.
1: Yeah, you know, and actually, if you come into my office, I have my fingerprint printed out. It sits on my desk, and so it reminds me of kind of who I am and how I think and kind of my value system, what's important to me, how I approach things. And so there's the um, occasion where if we're having a challenging day or I feel not as focused as I need to be on a particular issue, I'll pick that piece of paper up and I'll read it and say, okay, Terry, remind yourself kind of, you know, how you look at things and who you are as an individual but also as a professional. And so I use that um, sometimes when I need to reset my compass a little bit and say, this is this is who you are. So if you just stay true to who that is, it's always served you well.
0: So one thing I did want to ask you about the conflict resolution piece is, you have had to deal with a lot of different conflict, a lot of different directions both here at Porch but previously at <laughs> Seminole. I mean, Being in social, that social work atmosphere, you have to deal with a lot of difficult situations. What are maybe a few key elements, you know, a few pieces of advice that you have for that you would be willing to share with people that, you know, might be going through difficult situations, whether it's with a coworker worker or family. What, what key pieces of advice might you offer when it comes to conflict resolution?
1: Well, I think that, you know, if you're having to manage conflict resolution, you know, sometimes the easy route is just to be able to say, if they would just do what I say, it'd all be fine, right? But we don't always know what people bring to the table. Sometimes people have challenging lives outside of the workplace. And you should try to be able to keep that at the door and check that, right, before you come to work. But life happens. We've been through a really rough period the last two and a half years with the pandemic. You know, it's certainly changed the way we all live in many respects. It's changed the way in which we live um, and work. You know, I think that you have to remember that you have to kind of, there's an old social work adage is that you have to start with where the client is at. Mm. I may have opinions or a perspective about something, but when there's conflict at work, say whether it's two coworkers who are having an issue or whatever the issue may be, you have to try to step back from it and be open to all perspectives. Keith Martin tells me all the time, there's three sides to every story. believe that there's about five sides to the story now <laughs> after six years here at Port. So, you know, but Keith reminds me of that, is that sometimes you can't just go with one side. Sometimes you can't go with two sides, maybe there's a third side to the story. I try to go on factual information. I can't always let my feelings drive the bus. I have to, sometimes I have to sit and say, what are the facts here? I might have an opinion about something, but what are the facts? tell us and then how does that guide us in terms of the best decisions that we can make when we're dealing with conflict whatever it may be
0: that's really good advice Mm -hmm. it's really good advice i think it's so important to listen before you speak i've heard so many times God or the Creator or whoever you believe in gave you one mouth and two ears mm-hmm. for a reason because yeah. you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk.
1: <laughs> you know, I, 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 my early career was in social work and I went on and did a master's in business administration and um, then a specialist degree in organizational leadership. So, you know, I, I like school, I like liked study, I like to learn. But I'm probably a better social worker now than I was when I was actually in the field because I use those skills every day in terms of listening and being respectful and, underst- and being open to different perspectives and kind of different places that people come from. And so I think, you know, probably, again, I'm probably a better social worker today than I was back, back in the day. So.
0: One of the things, uh, so... I've worked with you directly course, um, yeah. not not as much I haven't had the opportunity for you to directly supervise me, but we have worked directly together on a someone lot of sticks di- <laughs>
1: I say you're lucky. <laughs>
0: but you know Terry I've, I have to say that you're also a great mentor Toronto, thank you. and um, I've, I've learned a lot from you just over the year just well it's not like you've been here 20 years like you are yeah. a Seminole, but just in the time that you have been here I've also learned a lot from you and you. uh, you're welcome and in, in seeing how you handle difficult situations how you approach people from very different perspectives, and just your work ethic in general. I can I will tell you that as a member of the Port of Creek Indians, I am so proud to say that you are here and that you're part of our team. I appreciate
1: that. Yep. That's nice feedback. Thank you. Yep,
0: you're welcome. One of my favorite things that I have referred to many, many, many times that I learned from you as one of your quotes is, keep your eyes on your own paper. <laughs>
1: That's right. I think, you know, sometimes when maybe there's a fire in the background, you know, whatever it may be, tell my directors all the time, you know, just keep your eyes on your paper and do your work, and that usually serves you well.
0: Mm -hmm. It does. What do you think has been the most frustrating part of your job?
1: Well, you know, when you manage people. I, I always say adults, you know, sometimes we should know better, but we don't all... When you're having to manage you know, employee conflict, it's tough. I do believe that typically there's always resolution, but it's probably, I, and I, I say that the big, most challenging thing for any director of managing is managing people. It's the human resource aspect of it, it just really is. It's also very time consuming. So you can, you can have an issue that can become very time consuming and sometimes you just have to stop everything you're doing and that's what your focus has to be. And so sometimes it gets frustrating because, you know, you have 10 other things that are in front of that that you need to get done, but then you have to reprioritize. You constantly are reshuffling the deck, but you have to be okay with that. You. You know, you have to understand the concept of ebb and pl- flow, you know, and that's not just a working for ports. I think that's with any organization, but I think sometimes within tribal organizations, you know, you've got to understand that ebb and flow that, you know, you may be trucking down the road in one direction, and then all of a sudden leadership gives you a different direction to go to, and you've got to be flexible with that. Okay, well, this is the direction we're going in now, and you might take a few more turns before you get to your final destination. So. You know that's probably the most challenging, but I think as long as you get to where you need to get to, but probably you know just managing people, it's 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 not easy. Um, but if you're able to help people navigate through that successfully, then it you get them on the other side of it, then it does feel good. You know when you're able to get there.
0: What are some things that you've been part of here that you're especially proud of?
1: I have to, you know, someone asked me that recently, and. Before the pandemic, you know, I could give you a list of enhancements that we've done in terms of services, how we've expanded things at Fred o. McGee and, you know, the employee clinic was a priority when I got here, and putting some structure, you know, the chairwoman did a great job kind of getting, getting the, the structure in place and then really fine-tuning that um, and beginning to look at things that we needed to look at processes and improving that. But to answer that question today, it is the tribe's response to the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I remember sitting in a conference room that Sunday. We got here about nine o'clock that morning, and I think we left ten or eleven o'clock that night. And um, coming in and not really knowing what to expect, you know, we thought, okay, well, we may be closed for a couple of weeks. Is this is going to come and go, and we'll get through this. And two and a half years later, here we are. Um, We didn't have all the answers then. Um, A lot of times we'd make a decision at 9 o'clock in the morning and we'd have to adjust that decision at noon because, you know, we get some new information. But without a doubt, it is the tribe's response to the COVID pandemic. It is sad that we lost tribal members and, and tribal member family members and even some coworkers. you know, that we lost or folks that became sick. And so it was a very difficult time. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty, but I could not be more proud of the staff and the tribe's response and the support that we got from council to do the things that we needed to do. I think we were quite a very strong leader in terms of Indian country of how we responded to that. Very, very, very proud of that.
0: And I'll say, even within the state of Alabama, we've been commended for how we responded to COVID. Um, And it wasn't just here at tribal government, but it was the tribe. And the tribe's footprint reaches far beyond the state of Alabama. It reaches, you know, our our gaming facilities, our business entities with Creek Indian Enterprises Development Authority. And we have an international footprint now. And the decisions that are made here in Porch, Alabama, were far reaching, um, even across the ocean.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's no one would have ever wished that upon anybody to have to, to deal with, with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, it's still ongoing. You know, we unfortunately are seeing a slight uptick in numbers just within the last week or so. So we kind of are holding our breath a little bit of, of you know, what's to come. But again, I, I could not be more proud of the staff and the team that it took. I remember doing our first vaccine clinic and now we could do it in our sleep but you know we had a staff of 50 there you know trying to roll out the first vaccines that we we gave out and you know I, I worked a lot of those vaccine clinics because i felt it was really important for me to be there with the team and spend time with those that were walking through the door and had concerns and you know if they took this vaccine what it would mean or if they chose not to you know to respect that yeah i, I hope we can get those days behind us soon but it's probably the most I've had in my career, really, probably ever because it just was such a huge impact.
0: Yeah, and it's impacted so many people. It has. I mean, it's impacted everybody. Who hasn't it touched? Yeah. I think that's the question. Who who hasn't it touched yeah. at this point? Let's talk a little bit about similarities and differences, differences that you've seen. Maybe not just between Seminole and mm-hmm. Porch, but um, you've also met a lot of people and networked with a lot of people throughout Indian country mm-hmm. over over your tenure, just working with sure. Native American tribes and to be fair, you're a non-Native, so you have a different perspective mm-hmm. and I'm really interested to hear, what are some things maybe that you've learned about let's start with, what are some things that you've learned about Native communities?
1: Well, I think that in a very simplistic way, they take care of their own and Seminole was very similar as with porch is that very family oriented native people are very giving given the history, you know, you might would question that a little bit, but you know, without hesitation, I saw Seminole be very generous and they're outpouring not only within their community, but to the greater community. I've certainly seen that at porch time and time again. And so when we are faced with crisis, um, or we are faced with a challenge, to see the community just come together. You know, we have an employee who is ill, you know, or may have lost, we recently had an employee who lost their home in a house fire. And the response within just a matter of hours was fantastic. And to see how the tribe responded. So you see that at the local level in small scales, but you also see the impact that PORCH does and all native tribes do. Because when they're advocating, whether it's in Washington or within their own states, they're impacting not only the lives of their immediate constituents, but also all of Indian country. And so, but I think it comes back to those core values, you know, where, you know, Native communities really take care of their own where anyways, and, and, and for such a long time, that's all that they had. That was the only resource that they had. And so their generosity, not only within their communities, but um, it's a family. You know, I mean, it's, it's a family. So you asked me earlier on what kind of brings me back every day. And I'm not a tribal member, but I do feel like I'm part of the Ports family in some way. I think they've made me feel that way. That, that's a good place to get up every morning and come to work. Even on those challenging days, you know, you kind of, you remember that.
0: Because you have to have that motivation and that draw. And a paycheck doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't care what people say. Yeah. Yes, to a certain extent. If if you don't have a choice but to work to put food in your baby's mouth, then of course you're going to go to even the most difficult job. But you know, you are an educated man, and you have, and you've, you're very um, experienced, and you've got a plethora of choices where you could work, and you choose to come back to porch every day. It's a, it is a conscious choice. Yeah. I can understand, you know, me as a tribal member, it hits a little different than somebody that wasn't born into the community. Yeah. yeah. So I can certainly, I definitely appreciate that. Do you see, just in your work with Indian country in general, do you see some similarities between Native communities? In, in terms of maybe challenges?
1: Well, I think certainly from health disparities, you know, you see that, you know, when you look at diabetics, the prevalence of diabetes within Indian country, when you look at um, some of the challenges in terms of mental health and substance abuse issues, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels kind of there that you see there, housing issues, um, and particularly those tribes that may be non-gaming tribes or maybe just kind of really getting their economic base kind of off the ground. So I think when you look at Porch and Seminole and their growth and development as a tribal organization, they can certainly lend their expertise and their journey and their story to other tribes that may not be kind of where they are. Um, But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, looking at health care, some of the mental health, substance abuse issues, some of the educational things, what I've also seen, though, is tribes taking that success and um, improving the lives of their tribal members and their quality of life for tribal members, whether it is in healthcare or housing or education, that is, there's, so there's, you know, you see some of the disparities, but then you also see how they turn that disparity around in terms of addressing some of those issues in a real positive way.
0: What has Port done? during the time that you've been here to help address some of those issues?
1: Well, I think, you know, when we've looked at um, healthcare insurance, we, how do we expand our priorities at the health department? We expanded our priorities. There's different levels of priorities based on some of the funding that we get through IHS, Indian Health Services, and that are supplemented through the tribe. You know, we, did a program a couple of years ago where we pay a quarterly um, payment to our tribal elders who are on Medicare you know to help them offset those premiums so and, and which impacts you know in terms of costs that you may have in terms of health care as you kind of get older um, I know there's been improvements you know in terms of housing you know housing is an important thing for folks um, you know to know that you have a roof over your head and sustainable housing I think looking at the growth of the community the, the there's the campus itself looks very different than when I got here. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2016 we sit in, as we're having this conversation, we're sitting in a brand new, you know, building um, that took a long time coming, you know, to build a new tribal council chambers as well as this administration building where we have programs offered for our tribal members. So, you know, the landscape has changed, the programs have changed. Um, I think we are providing better services, um, more benefits to tribal members than when we got here before we got here in 16
0: and when you first came here in 2016 i can imagine you might have been a little shocked to know that you were in a bedroom in the assisted living facility and that served (laughs) as your office well you know i
1: think i think i had a a a fold-up chair and a little fold-up white table that Justin Sabeler had been in my office. He was a tribal member who now works on the economic development side. Um, I always felt bad because I think Justin got moved out of that office to make room for me. So I had lunch with him a few weeks back, and I told him I said I always feel bad that I got they had me moving your office. But I'm an old social worker, so my first office was an old room closet. You know, it's it's not about the size of the office or the furniture. It's about the work that's done, really. It's what it comes down to. What's the work that comes out of it?
0: Now. With your permission, I'd like to get a little bit into your personal life. Sure. Okay. So one thing that I have that I know about you personally is that you are a man who practices what you preach, and you did start off in the social work realm, and you are currently a single dad with two children who are, by all intents and purposes... Have the love bond with you, but aren't (laughs) biologically yours. That's true. Can you share a little bit about what that's been like? Because you adopted both of your children.
1: I did. So I have a daughter and a son. I have two teenagers in my house. So I hope everyone gives me sympathy when you realize that I have two (laughs) teenagers
0: and lots of prayers.
1: prayers. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I, the very first internship that I did in my social work career, I did through the Department of Children and Families in Tallahassee when I was at Florida State. And it was working with children who were either in a protective services role or were in an out-of-home placement due to child welfare issues um, with their birth parents. And so as I moved on kind of in my career, I wanted to um, somehow be able to impact children that had come through the child welfare system, and so I decided one day to go through the adoption program process and get approved for a home study and said if it's meant to be and the Lord wants to allow me to be a dad, He'll make that happen. And really, kind of doing and I had great, great family support. So you know, I kind of had those conversations with my family and said, hey, if I do this, you know. I'm gonna need some help here so you guys help me out well i adopted my daughter first my daughter was um, she was six years old when i met her and i adopted her when she was seven and then my son um, came about a year later um, he was four years old and um, again had been in the, the child welfare system since he was 10 months old and so uh, they both had unique challenges um, when they came and um, it's been a journey for us all but i can look 10 years later and. I'm, I, I tell people it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but it's the most rewarding thing that I've ever done in my life. They are not biologically my children, but they are my children. And um, I would defend them um, and protect them in any way possible as you would if they were my, my biological children.
0: So. I always thought that was so interesting. And it, and I think, like me knowing, knowing that about you, not that I put you on a pedestal, <laughs> but... You know, it just, it made me really admire you. Well, I
1: appreciate that. It's, it's, um, it is a challenge. And, you know, I think I'm going to show my age. I'm 56. I'll be 57 um, soon. You know, I was raised in a time where there were no cell phones and we had three channels on the TV. So I'm going to really date myself. And um, as opposed to raising children now in an era of social media and access to tons of information, you know, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this who have raised children or have children particularly in this generation you know it brings a different unique set of challenges and how you navigate that to where you know you're trying to raise children to be good citizens and be respectful and you know prepare them for a future to be successful and be happy and and trying to navigate all of the unique challenges that can come across their way, so particularly children who have come from a child welfare system, you know, that maybe their early journey was not what you would hope for any child, but, you know, you hopefully are giving them that opportunity to, to have a good start in life and be successful and be happy.
0: If there are any folks who are listening that are considering fostering or adopting, what what message would you share with them about that?
1: Well, I think you know you have to look within yourself and look at your motivation, you know, for doing that. Um, I did this in my forties, um, as opposed to doing it maybe in my twenties. But I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. I had my time, and I also was mature enough that I thought I could handle the challenge, particularly being a single dad. So being able to, to meet those unique challenges, particularly with children who are going to bring some unique issues with them to the table um, and to that environment. So I think it's, again, most rewarding thing I've ever done, but it's not for everybody. You know, I think if you look at fostering children, you know, the ultimate goal is reunification with that, you know, that biological family. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. You know, I went the adoption route, so I, I was not a foster family, but I took children who had come through that system, so had gone, kind of traveled through that journey. But I think there are great child welfare agencies, whether it's here in Alabama or in Florida or whatever state that you may reside in, that if you have the opportunity and it's within your heart and you feel like it's something that you can really give back to a child in need, then um, something that folks should consider.
0: So. As we close out our time here together, what legacy are you leaving here at PORCH?
1: Well, you know, I think with anybody, whether it's at PORCH or anything else, ultimately it's very simple. I hope I left it a little bit better than I found it. I hope my, my footprint, that you and I had a conversation not too long ago about, you know, you know that there's a better chief of staff out there somewhere or, you know, somebody can do it differently or maybe even do it a little bit better. But, you know, I I do believe that um, I've made a good contribution to the tribe while I've been here and will continue to do so. But I don't do it by myself. There's not anything that we accomplish alone, you know, so it's with the team and everybody working together. And so I, I hope that when I go to the house and I prop my feet up, whatever that looks like and whenever that time comes, that people will remember, you know, that I was a professional that I tried to treat people with respect and dignity, um, that I really cared about the tribe um, and the tribal members, um, and that I had a positive impact on all of us here.
0: Thank you so much, Terry. It's been a pleasure spending this time with you.
1: Likewise, thanks,
0: Megan. Thank you for joining us today on A Place Called Porch. Tune in next week to hear about the Porch Creek Indians Attorney General, Miss Lori Stinson. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to our podcast.